Welcome to Becoming Referrable, the podcast that helps you become the kind of advisor people can't stop talking about. I'm Steve Wershing. On this episode, we have a conversation with Cheryl Holland, founder of the Abacus Planning Group in Columbia, South Carolina. I've had the good fortune of talking to a lot of successful advisors and leaders in our profession, and Cheryl stands out among them for her thoughtfulness in leading her company and how many different things she gets right. Abacus has carefully designed and continues to improve the experience they deliver to clients. They have invested time and treasure in developing and utilizing their technology to enhance the human experience rather than becoming tech-centric. She's an experienced mentor known for her skills in developing talent. She shares authority with team members in a way so many founders struggle with, and she's built a very successful firm that consistently gets a stream of referrals, including many from centers of influence. Cheryl shares with us many insights and innovations that will benefit the leader of any financial advisory firm. I hope you enjoy our conversation with Cheryl Holland. Learn everything you need to know to form and benefit from a successful client advisory board from the man who has led more client advisory board meetings than anyone in the financial services industry. Stephen Wershing, CFP, has been helping financial advisory firms create and utilize client advisory boards as a business building strategy for over seven years. And now you can get his best advice for a small fraction of the cost by attending this one-day program held just before the NAPFA 2018 conference on October 15th in Philadelphia. By the end of this one-day program, you will have a complete and thoughtful plan to make your client advisory board a reality or make a bigger success of the one you already have. What you'll learn includes how to choose the right participants for your board, creating an effective board meeting agenda, choosing a venue, what restaurants won't tell you, choosing the right person to run your meetings, and upgrading the client experience with your board's guidance. The program also includes guest speaker Marie Swift, president and CEO of Impact Communications, a thought leader for thought leaders. She is known for bringing some of the industry's best and brightest voices together for dialogue and debate. She'll teach you how to leverage your advisory board and your marketing. You'll walk out with a complete action plan for getting your advisory board together or to make your current board a bigger success. Go to napfa.advisoryboard.solutions. One day, October 15th, in Philadelphia, can show you how to deepen your client relationships and engage them like never before. Having a conversation with some of your best clients may be the fastest way to referrals and more clients. Don't miss this opportunity. Go to napfa.advisoryboard.solutions to sign up for this event today. That's napfa.advisoryboard.solutions. Now, Becoming Referrable. Cheryl Holland, welcome to the Becoming Referrable podcast. Thanks for joining us. Steve, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, pleasure to have you here. And so let, let's let's just start with your client experience. You you describe what you do at Abacus as having a team approach to servicing clients, and, and a lot of advisors say that. And in my observation, a lot of the time it actually translates into different actual experiences um, and different ways of doing it. So could you describe for us what a team approach means to you? Yes, language is so important. And I know we've hired some individuals who would say to us, yes, I love working on a team. And what they meant was they love doing individual work and then having friends around. And, <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's a great way to be. Um, yeah, what sure. we really mean is we're highly inter 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 
dependent, um, both in how we support each other's workload and each other's um, learning curve and mentoring up and down both ways, but also how we serve the client. And so if you were to come in for a meeting this afternoon at the firm, you would walk in and your team leader, which is the individual with the most experience, typically on the financial planning side, your portfolio manager, a support advisor, and your operational support um, team member would all be ready to greet you. And we would typically walk in as a group, shake hands, even if everyone is not going to be in the meeting. So you always have the faces um, to go with the names that you're working with sometimes um, routinely throughout the year. Um, clients pretty quickly orient to a favorite person on the team. So even if you're the portfolio manager, you might field calls that have to do with the tax issue and you have to quickly learn how to toss the ball appropriately and respectfully to that other team member who can really answer the question. But that allows the client, um, and sometimes each, if we have a couple, they individually may relate better to one or another person on the team, not necessarily to the same person. So it gives a lot of depth to the team when you're on vacation. You're not worried about what's going to happen while you're gone. As you all may know, we have a month-long sabbatical every five years. Again, you go with freedom and enjoyment, knowing you're coming back to a clean desk or as clean as you may have left it. And it brings a rich set of information to the client in terms of technical expertise where we're all generalists at some level at what we do in financial advising, but you will have someone who has a lot of tax experience perhaps on a team if that client needs that. someone who has more experience in fixed income, if that portfolio needs that. So we tailor that group. And recently, as I've gotten older and the gray hairs are starting to show and clients begin to say to me, what are your plans? You know, I can say, hey, we purposely populated your team with these different age demographics. And they go, oh, yeah, I've got someone in their 50s, someone in their 40s, someone in their 20s. I feel good about that. So it has multiple purposes when you say there's a team serving a client. There's the technical experiences, there's the personality connection, there's the, de- the depth of bench when someone's not in the office, the client doesn't worry about that, and there's the long-term plan they can see in this organization, they can be here for their life and not have to worry about their own future and a new advisor at 85. And and you've and this- said that, um, uh, hang on, Julie, before yeah. we move on, um, you've said that, that um, the whole team walks in to greet the client. Uh, and the, the client will often gravitate toward one person when, when, um, as, as you have review meetings with that client and you address different aspects of their relationship to you, the planning and the, uh, investment management and the other services that you provide, can you, is the same person going in to talk to that client each time or, or do they meet with different people for, for different purposes? So we absolutely meet with different people for different purposes and, you know, abacus, we're big into process. So we have our template agenda as many advisors do, and it typically has a big overview. How are you? How's the family? How's the business? How's health? Um, and typically the whole team will be in there. Not always for that. Um, then there'll be a section on financial advice issues, tax planning, estate issues, insurance updates, whatever needs to be addressed, and then an investment section. And the whole team doesn't always stay in for all of it. We do for some clients, but not for most. There's an administrative section, which interestingly, we've always done at the end, but we're experimenting now with peak experience, learning that 
you know, your, your final experience is what you really remember. So should we be doing the grunt work at the beginning mm-hmm. with the operational person rather than at the end? Mm-hmm. But we're, we're not all in there at the same time. And we're not always all in a meeting. Um, we think about that ahead of time. And the client's not happy with how someone didn't come to that meeting. They tell us, well, where, where was John or where was Cheryl or where was Charles? Why wasn't he in this meeting? And so, you know, sometimes we morph a little bit what ideally from our perspective works to what ideally from the client's perspective works. And do those teams get mixed up uh, differently for different clients or is there a team that has its own sort of client base? Yes. Oh. Steve, that's such a brilliant question and one we are always navel-gazing over. Um, early on, we always intertwine teams so that we don't have silos, so to speak. And there are several benefits of that. It would be very difficult for any one team member to leave and take a bunch of clients with them. And that was probably early on a defensive posture, a logical reason to do that. Um, the second reason that we do it is people get mentored by different team members and therefore you're never having to work with X or Y and that person might be particularly irritating to you over these issues. You never get sort of drugged down by any relationship. <laughs> um, the negative is there's a little bit of um, drag in the system from that. Um, and so we periodically review, is that optimal for us? And so bottom up right now, people like this sort of spider web approach that we have for our client service model. But I couldn't say that we would never change to more team, strict team only based um, success. The struggle is, let me just add one more thing. Clients are so diverse at Abacus. So you might have uh, a very um, religiously conservative young couple who own a specific kind of business and therefore really to serve them properly, they have to have this set of team members for them to be the most successful and feel the most comfortable. The next client might be, you know, a client in their 70s who owns a lot of real estate, who lives a certain place in the country and is um, extraordinarily politically on the other spectrum and might make some of my team members uncomfortable. So even though we're trying to be always value free, it's always about the client. They're just certain people that you work with more effectively and your skill set is needed in a different combination for that client. So it's, there's some real positives, but there are some challenges. So you've talked about the development opportunities, which is often uh, the argument I've heard in favor of the structure that you, you have today. You mentioned mentoring. Is that a formal mentoring uh, arrangement that you have within teams or how, how's, how does that work at your firm? So, you know... In real estate, it's location, location, location. I think with an advisory firm, it's mentoring, mentoring, mentoring. <laughs> and so, you know, there's never enough mentoring, I think, we found. And you have to do it all the time, every time. But as an, let's just use that that client meet as an, as an example of a type of um, mentoring. After every meeting, the whole team comes back together for a 10 or 15 minute debrief. And we have a checklist of things that we can use a checklist or not to go over but it's to go around the room, get the impression of every team member of how that client's doing. Did we meet expectations that we set for that meeting that the client had? Um, 
Did we use too much jargon? Um, to, did we use the right tools when a situation came up? Did we listen enough? And we give each other feedback. Here's what you did really well. Here's what we could do a little bit better. So not only are we mentoring on the technical advice and working with clients, we're mentoring on you got to give feedback to people. Even everybody in the room gets a piece of positive and critical um, feedback. So there's a 15-minute, 10-minute huddle. It's meant to be great for better service of the client, but it's also meant to be a mentoring opportunity for everyone in the room. Oh, that's great. Um, you mentioned uh, earlier just that you have a wide diversity of clients, but you you have a, a niche experience. Is that right? For closely held businesses? Is that your primary uh, focus at the business? Julie, you're exactly right. And I would say probably 60 to 65% of our clients um, our families with shared assets. So not every client has a closely held business anymore or still has one, but the vast majority of them have extensive real estate holdings that they own together, a business that they've owned together, um, a trust that um, holds oil and gas that they manage together. So we are out looking for um, clients who have complexity on the planning side and complexity on the family system side. And we think that's a blue ocean for us because not many people are training on the technical and soft skill side to meet those needs. So how did you come to that, that focus? I mean, I mean, you describe it as a, as a blue ocean. So what was the thinking prior to that that led you to that point? Well, I for I for one thing, I was resistant to the notion of an ideal client. So Tracy Backus and I worked together a long time, and I like to say that Tracy recommends something to me, and it takes me five to seven years. I think that curve, I think that adoption is getting shorter and shorter. <laughs> and so, and then what I did, I'm like, what in the world was I resisting? Um, but this idea of a an ideal client, which I like that approach better than niche, perhaps in terms of people adopting more rapidly. We were slow to come to, but I think when we finally embraced it and we realized, you know, a good 40 to 45% of our clients, they may be a physician, but our really successful ones were ones that had their own surgery center that they had created. So there was this common thread of entrepreneurship. There's a common thread of family systems owning assets. And we said, let's just embrace that. And um, it means certain ways, we certifications we need. We need to hire in a certain pattern. We need to develop different modules, such as family meetings, which we were not doing before. Um, and so it turned out to be something that gave me a lot of energy because it was complicated and required me to keep learning. Um, I think for other members of the firm, they looked around and said, oh, these are my clients already. I can do this. And I really love advising people in philanthropy. And this so gives me the opportunity to do more and more and more of that if we can attract the right clients. But it took us, I would say, a good two years to go through that process organizationally. And then we're still in the process of developing our branding, our storytelling, our skill sets to really meet that ideal client where they are. And, and you know, I, I'd like to look into that a little further because it's so important. One of the things that Julie and I found when we've, when we've studied this versus referrals is customizing that service offering to that target market. So you mentioned, um, Family meetings is one special thing that you do. What what are some of the other aspects again of of the uh, experience that you provide those 
Um, and, and if you could, could you explain what families with shared assets means? So, so a family with shared asset would be, let's just give a couple of examples. Um, we have two sisters whose father was a real estate developer. And when he passed away, um, and their mothers, you know, owned the assets, but they became the de facto managers of this rich set of assets. So much was raw land, so much which was strip malls for retail. And so that's a very particular skill set to go in and work together instead of dad as the decider and the entrepreneur and the visionary, two daughters as stewards for their mother themselves and their children for whom this is the key asset. And so imagine all the different ways you have to think about um, what that client needs in terms of uh, their advisors, the kind of CPA they need, the kind of conversations they need, they need to have. They're both married to men that they respect and love and w- want to have input too. So when you have five people at the table, mom and two couples, and then as the adult children become adult, they're maybe in high school when they come on, now they're 28, they want to be at the table. Just being able to facilitate a conversation and a different kind of decision making for how to develop and liquidate properties is very different than what your typical advisor would be talking to you about in a meeting, perhaps. So Another I can imagine, example. Oh, sorry, ahead, I'm sorry, Julie. No. no I was just going to say, I mean, I imagine the technical complexity is very different, but I, I would also imagine that the soft skills around facilitation are, are very different as well. Absolutely. And and for that reason, two of us have gone to the Family Firm Institute and we've gotten accreditation in um, that area um, specifically to get better at those skills. And we had a well psychologist work with us for many years firm wide. Now, those skills trickle across all clients. But if you have a focus on why you're doing it, it really hones your willingness to do it. Another example would be... um, family that owns a manufacturing plant and the father is transitioning from they co-founded it father and son but the father is older now he's transitioning out of ceo president the son's transitioning in the daughter's outside the business what does this mean for legacy estate planning governance decision making who has a voice who has a role Um, succession planning for that son is that going to be a grandchild so as a whole you have all the normal how do I invest my portfolio my rollover IRA how do I think about debt for the company versus me but you have this extra layer that's critical to the wealth creation and wealth preservation that you would not have if the client were um, an attorney um, an engineer another um, type of profession working for a public company, for example. So, so there are so many really interesting elements of this that I, I, that I think you've consciously addressed that's really interesting. So you've, you've looked at the special, the unique needs of, of that market um, and the things that they need. And then you've talked about the skills and, and things that you've developed um, to provide um, services, you know, to, to customize your, the client experience to the needs of that client. Um, you've also done a lot of work in your back office, you know, customizing your technology and your support systems. You've already talked about having processes for everything and having, you know, template agendas and all kinds of things to make things go more smoothly. But I'd like to talk a little bit about your CRM system specifically because you've done a lot of work in customizing that to facilitate providing this kind of client experience. Can, can you tell us a little bit about, um, 
what kind of work you've done on your CRM system and, and how you utilize it um, specifically to enhance that client experience? Well, for me, I say that a long time ago, I may have had the vision and did sort of a framing of a red barn, <laughs> <laughs> but the next generation of the office, who's really the ones that have turned it into this beautiful work of art that can do all the things I'm going to talk about. So um, I can take about 1% of the credit. Um, <laughs> But what's exciting on the client experience side, and we're really just getting into more and more of this, is um, I'll give you a, 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 a small example. We have these age-triggering checklists that said when someone turns 18 or 35 or 60 or 81, right, these things should be thought about. Well, now all that's automated. So when your child turns 18, you ought to, you know, the advisor automatically gets it to do with a template email saying, hey, your child's 18. Um, it's more elegant than this. Um, they need to have a healthcare power of attorney because they're age of majority in South Carolina or wherever. Here's the statutory form. We would love for you to go meet with your attorney XYZ to fill it out. But in the absence of doing that, sit down with him and go over this or her and have her complete her healthcare wishes because without it, the doctors are not going to talk to you anymore right? Because they're not a child anymore. So that we've always had that rule of doing it, but it was sometimes hit or miss. This way, having automated, every client gets this experience. And I'll tell you all, that's the kind of thing clients value. After they've been here for a time, they trust you on the portfolio. Um, but if they're getting that, or, you know, you turn whatever age it is, or there's a touch point that you and I all know is common. Child turns 15 in South Carolina, believe it or not, you can get your, your permit to drive a car. We send out this document called I Promise. You can sit down with your child and go over the rules of driving a car. Um, and so this client, you turn 50, you get from us the forever letter, sit down and think about writing your family, the forever letter. So there's this way now that we can automate that, that takes all the minutiae off the advisor, the relationship manager, some people may call them and makes it automatic. So they just really have to get in, go through their activities for the day, you know, customize the email template and hit send and it all goes out automatically. And that's just a small example of what all it can do, but it's one that brings me great joy. Wow. And, and you know, I, and I, 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 there, there, there are two things I really love about, about that. One, one is that, um, like you said, you have automated it. So it's not left to the advisor to try to remember. I'm, I'm still amazed, you know, when I talk with advisors, how many of them, they know a lot of the, they know a lot of really good things to do for clients. But still, on some level, they're kind of ma they're kind of recreating it every time a client hits one of those benchmarks, because there isn't a process around it. It's not automatically presented to them, and and, and I love and I love that part of it. And, and the other thing that I, I really like about it is the, um, you know, the con the consistency of the client experience that that provides, and 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 um, and that the client experience is about more than financial planning. So. You know, there there are only so many ways that you can differentiate yourself based on financial planning and, and investment management. And so you you the more you can go beyond that, the, the the more meaningfully you can differentiate yourself from other firms. And it sounds like you've done a lot of that kind of thinking for clients. Well, I hope so. I mean, we're not perfect every day by a long shot, but I'll say a couple of things. One, you're right. Other advisors have these wonderful ideas. Everything I just told you, I probably stole from somebody else. So <laughs> um, you don't have to be creative to be good at this. You just have to go out and do it. <laughs> and the other thing I think is that most of us who got into this profession, 
got into what we believe is a helping profession. We want to help other people. So we're really good at portfolio management or we're really good at long-term cash flow projections, whatever our gift is. But in our heart of hearts, we also like helping people. And the CRM at Abacus really allows us to help more people consistently. So, and it does all kinds of other smart things. But um, in terms of the client experience, I think we're really beginning to just touch the surface of what it can do. And I think that's why you get a CRM. You get a CRM for two reasons, a repository for all your data, but a way to mass produce a customized experience. That was always our vision. Um, and 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 let's, let's get a little technical about that for just a minute so that people can understand. Um, you use Salesforce, is that correct for your CRM? That's correct. And, and my understanding, I don't, I haven't seen the system, but my understanding is that with Salesforce, even more so than most other CRMs, you, you have the basic system, but then you have to do a lot of customizing and tailoring and engineering before you can actually put it into use. Is that right? That is correct. And we were fortunate to have used an older um, sales logics that we had a lot of things. So we knew what we wanted and that was very helpful, but we probably, and we work with the um, Agile, Michael Joyce's firm as co-partners in all of this development. But for many years, we probably spent $50,000 a year on programming. Um, and we have a very gifted person in-house who does some of that work himself. So it's no small undertaking, but if, you know, our return on investment that we calculate pretty returnly, it's extraordinarily high and, because of the work we don't have to hire someone to do. Yeah. And, and well, and I, I really think that's an important message for, for our listeners that, you know, it's because I, I, I fear that if, if for a lot of advisors who've not gone that far, um, there may be the mistaken impression that you can, okay, well, I bought a package and I put it on the computer. And so now I'm done, I'm ready to go. And that's, and that's really not, if you were to break down, uh, if you were to look at the total cost of the total commitment of, of resources from Abacus to how you can use your CRM system now, how, how do you think roughly you would break that down between the cost of the software, the cost of the customization and then the training and compliance that you have to do in the office to make all that stuff, you know, put all that into action. That's a great question. And I should have a better answer, but you know, nowadays you're adding all these little add-ons. And so um, I, I, I would, I would put it confidently that it's in, it's in the um, two to 3% of our total budget range. If you look at opportunity cost of people actually mapping processes, evolving business impact, um, training actually is pretty straightforward these days because there's high adoption and it's an easy to navigate system. You never get away from that. Um, but, but it's, it's, it's definitely in the two to three and maybe even higher than that percentage of the budget. And this is for a large firm for whom revenues have become, an important, a significant number. And so I think what I would say to people is this, just start somewhere. Um, data, it makes your organization more valuable. So if you have, if you have a CRM and all you're doing is getting the data input as a, and you think of that as a, as a cost, which it is, your firm is more valuable because whatever happens, you die, you sell it, someone, you train someone else to take over. Having easily accessible, understandable data is so valuable. And then you can begin to program slowly over time. Just pick your biggest pain point. Everybody has one. Is it increased calling and you drop the ball? Is it um, getting out your um, portfolio reports on a regular basis? Whatever it is, um, there is a pain point. Just start there and you'll be surprised how 
rewarded and validated you feel and then you'll just start building over time it it, it but it is a time and money commitment and, and patience and, and what do you do to make sure that that people follow through on the processes and the things that you set up to make sure that they're putting the notes into salesforce and that they're scheduling the tasks and all that um well i think that's a great that's a whole different discussion <laughs> <laughs> about you know because some people love that some people don't and so you have to sort of a broad expectation um and i think what happens there is is once something goes successfully for you as an advisor because you have done the proper things you don't need much more encouragement than that um is everything banned box perfect across every advisor no because each advisor has their own different joyful gifts that we take full advantage of. So if they're not the one to fill in the Xbox every time, but they do these other things, no one gets super worried about that. But if you're not someone who loves living in a system, and this is another good thing about an organization, Abacus has a very unique culture and you either love it or you do not like it at all. And part of that is living in a CRM and being very task driven for part of your day. That is not for everybody's experience as an employee or as a team member for their life. And they're not going to last here very long. And that there's nothing wrong with that. But I'm glad we're at the point where it's robust enough. People figure that out really early. But when everyone think- here right now says, this system is my friend. And I want it to be better tomorrow <laughs> than it is today. If you think about an advisor who, so we just touched on this, is is not investing at that level and, and probably won't for some time. Would you say there are particular processes or workflows that have had the most significant impact mm-hmm. overall on your client experience? So Julie, I would, I would, I would put that in three areas. One, I would say the um, process around inquiries, right? The moment someone calls and that entire process until they become a client, because you want to be closing at 75 or 80%, I believe. And when we slip below that, I begin to, we start looking at what are we doing wrong? Are we taking the wrong people in the door to talk to? Do we do mm-hmm. something wrong in the process? And so I think mapping out that process and making sure that goes flawlessly. And then I think the second thing you tackle is your onboarding process mm-hmm. so that every and then you get a lot of feedback we do an assessment at the end of the client's first year and we do you know a 30 minute you know interview by our chief operating officer who's never met that client typically what was your experience like or would you give us feedback and we improve the process and so i think those are the two pain points because as mark curley wrote in a report your most expensive part of acquiring a client is that first year after that they become a much more profitable venture. So Mm -hmm. getting that right and making that profitable as you can is only possible through process. And then the other is the inquiry all the way to signing the client advisory agreement and becoming a client. Those two seem to me the most important pieces of what we do. Right, right. And so you talked about culture and we started off um, sort of looking at your team approach. could you describe, first of all, describe your culture? You said it's very unique and it's probably not all CRM. I'm going to guess there's more to it than that. <laughs> I hope that's um, <laughs> When I die, I hope that does not go anywhere on my obituary. Yeah, right. yeah, right. yeah. It's, it's not going in my forever letter. Let's it's, it's, it's really not. It's really not. Um, but I'd also love to know a bit about how you develop talent mm. at the firm. 
So I do think that one of the biggest challenges facing our profession is talent, recruiting, growing, retaining talent. Um, and that's not ever going to go away as a challenge. And so we put a lot of energy and thought into that. Um, I think any firm that wants to grow, for us, we decided to grow because we were attracting great young minds and people that we enjoyed spending time in the day with. And so therefore, how do we retain them? Well, only if we're growing, will they stay? Once you start to grow quickly or or grow at any rate, that puts stresses on the system because they're not at the right skill level. They're not um, prepared in any way, shape, or form for certain kinds of situations. So mentoring, development, putting resources in place becomes imperative. And so we think about that. We work on that all the time. And I think the newer trend, certainly for us, is we put just as much energy into developing our operational team as we do our our um, more traditional professional team. They're both professionals. We just have required different types of mentoring and we've been rewarded for that. I've just blown away what that team has accomplished. Um, but it was them saying, I don't see myself on your leadership pipeline. Where's our mm-hmm. path? Um, mm-hmm. What are our resources? And they were there. We just had to think about it differently and more carefully and coalesce that around a plan for them. What what for you? So you mentioned the leadership pipeline. Could you tell us a little bit about that? And also, can you tell us a little bit about um, what the path looks like for somebody to become? I mean, do you have multiple owners at Abacus? We do. We have. Um, there are four of us that are shareholders now, and we've invited three new. Will be joining us in December, um, and so that'll be interesting. Sort of the firm run by a decider to a firm that's truly. Um, group governance is a very different approach. Many organizations succeed with that, and we're transitioning to that. So let's. So the way we think about it is, um, historically, we thought of three stages of development. We've added a fourth, which I'm excited about. But the first stage is just coming on board and doing basic work habits. So my daughter just started working for a firm in San Francisco, and I said to her, you know, just be on time every day. Don't leave it two minutes till. <laughs> learn to say thank you. Learn to ask questions. Just the basics of learning how to work. And we think about the basics in five areas. Business acumen, which could be networking, using the processes, your technical skills, your communication skills. So that's writing, listening, verbal communication, presentation skills. Um, the fourth area that we think about um, is really all the people, things around um, working with your colleagues. Um, and so that might be learning to be delegated to as you move up the ladder, delegating to others. And the fifth is really our culture. So those are the five areas that we think of a development. So level one is just managing yourself. Level two, where we find the most difficulty is the bend in the pipeline to managing, getting work done through other people. So you're a great solo worker. All of a sudden, you've got two or three people who are giving you work before you can do your work. You're managing them or you're mentoring them or you're supervising them. It's a completely different skill set. And we now throw more resources at helping you take that bend in the pipeline. The third is thinking not about getting work done through others, but getting work done through the organization. So it's strategic thinking. On the client side, it might be working with C-suite clients, CEOs, CFOs who tend to be a little tougher. Um, Business development, you're expected to not only develop relationships, but bring on clients. And we've added a fourth level I can't tell you much about because we haven't mapped it out totally, but transforming the organization. You know, 
what, because the world is changing, we're going to be a different place in 10 years. So how do you transform an organization, which is different than managing yourself, managing others, leading a firm, transforming it is a whole different set of skill sets. Mm -hmm. So you move through, no one is ever good at everything. When we first developed the pipeline, I was like, I am really good at level one basic work habits and I'm pretty good at leadership, but I really suck at management. <laughs> so I had to go out and do a lot of resource building and skill building. <laughs> and I still give myself a solid B minus and sometimes a C minus, but I'm working on it. <laughs> hey, so, go, ahead. go ahead, Julie. I was just going to say, because I know we're, we're pushing toward our time, but one of the things I wanted to make sure we asked you about is the referrals that you get from centers of influence. You know, we love to talk about referrals on this podcast, mm -hmm. but could you tell me a little bit about um, how you go about that and what you think has driven your success there? So centers of influence can mean all kinds of things. I think we traditionally think of attorneys, especially state attorneys. Um, we think of business transaction attorneys, um, CPAs. Um, we've broadened that. We sort of think of foresters and um, certain kinds of commercial real estate agents to also be our centers of influence. So you, I think broadening that definition is powerful. I think it's just a matter of two things. One, being, if you think about going into the grocery store, right, you want to be where the raisin bran is, not where the grape nuts are in terms of people's mindset. So you always want to be dominant shelf space. So how do you do that? Well, I do think we send out a newsletter that we can tell who opens it and we can tell what they read and we customize to that. Um, I take, I'm not a big, you know, lunch person, but I will take, I'll say, come have coffee with me. Um, I'm going to go walk down the street, something simple because I know they're busy. And so when I'm near them, I'll get on their calendar, but for like a little bit of time. Um, I also think referring out to them has made a difference when we refer the perfect person. So we'll have them to a networking luncheon in the office to show off our interesting space, but also to find out what they love to do best. And so it's not just about telling them what we do well, but learning what they do and then trying to figure out a way to make that happen where it's appropriate for our clients. Um, so I think there's a lot of nuances to this. Let, let, yeah, let's get real nitty gritty about that. So you 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 call up an, an estate attorney and, and say, hey, let's go have coffee. And so you sit down in front of that attorney. What do you say in the conversation? So I almost always bring something with me. So I oftentimes know them. And so I have a, I love giving weird gifts. So it might be something as simple as the Vietnam DVDs by Ken Burns or um, the little book of bunny suicides. If they know I have, they have a weird sense of humor <laughs> or I've made peach pies the night before and I'll bring them a couple of slices to take home to their family. Right. So I try to bring something that says to them, I know who you are. It could be uh there's a wonderful company, Charleston, that makes these beautiful um, sun teas where you just put the little tea in a plastic jug, put it out on your porch, and you got tea into it. So something that says, I've thought about you. Um, then, you know, keep to your promises of 15 or 20 minutes. How are you doing? What's going on in the business? Um, and I really want to hear what's going on in the business because that's a data point for economic trends. A little talk, you know, 80, 20, 80% about them, 20% about you. That's the power. Um, and then I realized I always do this, but I heard Suzanne Peterson talk at the NAPFA conference. She's a leadership development expert. She said, always make a pinky promise and follow up on it. So 
whatever, I'll say, oh, I've got the best book I want you to read. I'm going to go ahead and send you the link from Amazon. Or, you know what, I just saw a white paper on that technical topic we're both struggling on. Let me send you the link. What, so always, always make a pinky promise and then follow up and do it. Because if people see you making a promise and doing what you say you're going to do, that makes all the difference in the world. Because then they know that you will follow through with someone they send to you. It's, it's a, it's a must-have to be referable. What, what did Dan Sullivan say? Use your, you know, say please and thank you. Do what you say you're going to do when you say you're going to do it and show up on time. And if you can do those three things, you're referable. <laughs> and those opportunities, when you make a little tiny reservation with someone, is a way to show off those three skills. And so um, we've talked about um, focusing on a specific market. We've talked about uh, processes and procedures and, and, and organizing your, um, uh, your technology around that. We've talked about developing the, the team um, and, and how you've pursued that. So when you put all of those together, how, how do you think, what, what do you think has been the effect on your ability to attract clients and referrals? Well, when we do, when we ask our clients, they would tell us something completely unrelated. They would say authenticity um, and listening skills. You're always yourselves um, and we feel heard. Hmm. So all the rest of it is sort of necessity, but those are the two things that I think have allowed us to grow in a pretty small market, relatively speaking. Um, we're not a large, wealthy community, but we've been able to be very successful. And I think it's because we're just ourselves at all times. Um, we're comfortable with that. And um, clients feel heard um, and listened to. Hmm. Okay. Well, I think... That's probably. I mean, did I take too much of a left turn there? No. I, well, I, 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 I mean, I'll, I'll share with you my, you know, my um, when when we're trying to to help the listeners understand how they can apply yeah. it. Yeah. Coach know, me. Yeah. Well, I, I think that there's, um, you know, it, we can't just say, you know, okay, so here's what you can take from Cheryl Holland. You know, go be more authentic. But I, but I think, <laughs> um, you know, I, but I think okay. what what that authentic is, and all the things that go into that that authentic experience is is really what's got people talking. You know that. Uh, yeah, you know. and maybe the better way to say it is. Um... You want to ask me the question again? <laughs> no, I, well, I'm just, uh, you know, it, it, it's, I, I, it sounds like the impression that I get is all of this work that you've done about um, customizing your offer and um, uh, systematizing the experience and having a, a team approach where you've developed all the people who are coming in contact, even, and the operations team, you know, um, that all of that has a, a, a significant influence on your ability to attract referrals. I'm, I'm just, my question was, how does that come out in the conversations that you have? Or, or what do you hear back from clients? But if what you hear is, you know, you, you, you guys are really authentic and, you know, we feel heard. I, I, I'm just wondering about your, your thoughts about how, how all of this work that you've done in those different areas um, leads people to refer you differently or refer you differently than the clients of other advisors. Um, so I think people are looking for a trusted advisor. And once they have a sample in our first year process, which covers in six meetings, all the areas every financial planner touches on, 
They have deep confidence in our technical skills. That is unquestionable. They have deep confidence in our ability to manage an error, which we typically make in the first year. And so they trust us. Um, but what they say to their friends is, I really want you to call my financial advisor. We really like Cheryl and Charles. Or we really like Susan and John. They're the real deal. And you're going to find out that they're going to listen not just to you, but your wife. A lot of men still come because they're worried about something happens to them. Their wife is not as interested in the financial side. So all those other things we do bring us trusted advisor status very quickly, which is the so that our cycle of growth is higher because of that. Mm -hmm. But what they're saying is these are the things that make them special because their expectations were high when they came in the door. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Sure. And I don't ever, we have to earn our reputation every day. And the only way to earn our reputation every day is all these things we talked about process and training. And our reputation is what gets people in the door. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Well, there's so much more that I'd love to ask you, but no, um, you guys go. We, uh, we, we, we have to, we have to wrap it up. We, we, unfortunately we can't go as long as we would like to sometimes, and maybe, maybe we can have a, have you back sometime, but. And we've gone um, too long. I'm now looking, I've blathered on. All right. <laughs> no, it's not you. It's, it's just a lot to say. So, yeah, uh, even for, I, to keep short. So I'm working on that too. <laughs> no, it was great. It, so Cheryl, it was great to have you on today and, and thank you so much for joining us. And there's, there's so much that, that, that advisors can learn from what you've done. And, and uh, thank you so much for, for joining us on, on becoming referable. Oh, thank you all again. It's a delight to be with both of you. And I look forward to starting to listen to the podcast. It's now on my short list. <laughs> Hi, it's Julie again. It was great to have you with us on Becoming Referrable. If you like what you've been hearing, please do us a favor and rate us on iTunes. It really does help. You can get all the links, show notes, and other tidbits from these episodes at becomingreferrable.com. You can also get our free report, Three Referral Myths That Limit Your Growth, and connect with our blogs and other resources. Thanks so much for joining us.